0: You're listening to the fourth season of Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship and how it can transform your everyday life. I'm Father Yuri Hladio, and I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in the field of liturgical worship. For our fourth season, Father Jeffrey and I decided to publicly publish a series of episodes which have hitherto been reserved exclusively for the patrons of this show. We'll be publishing them here exactly as they were heard by our patrons. Father Jeffrey and I release special private episodes for our patrons on a weekly basis, so if you like what you hear and you'd like access to much, much more, you can go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to become a patron. But for now, we hope you enjoy the public release of this episode. Hello, patrons, and hello, Father Jeffrey. How are you, Father Jeffrey?
1: I'm doing well. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing well. It's a good morning so far. I don't have my morning coffee, though. I'm going to make it after we record.
1: Oh, do you think it'll show?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to, like, fade away sometimes, and I'll come in and be like, sorry, what did you say? Um, yeah, how are things at uh, Merbears?
1: Well, at the time we're recording, we are in our stay-at-home mode in the province of Ontario, so um, obviously people are growing a little bit weary of the ongoing pandemic and everything, but I think (laughs) this time possibly detecting the light dawning over the horizon and maybe uh, sometime in the next few months we'll be able to start heading back on a kind of more firm road towards normal... Life together as a parish, but I have to say i've over the i mean if you told me a year ago that we would be doing this for a year, um I would have doubted how well people could have kind of hung together and supported one another but uh, i I'm, I'm pleased with with how you know people have pitched in and looked out for each other and in this in spite of not being able to join together for worship in quite the same way as before it's it's all worked out, and maybe we'll come out of this the stronger for it mm-hmm.
0: Well, today we're talking about Lent, which is a fast. And a couple of months ago, I gave a a sermon, you know, framing these coronavirus uh, policies and and measures as a type of, especially the, the liturgical ones like not singing together, that kind of thing. I framed them as a a type of fast, that we are in a fasting period, even though we're not technically in a fasting period. So I thought today we could actually just straight up talk about a fasting period of the church, perhaps the fasting period of the church, uh, Great Lent. And particularly, I want to talk about why is it so big? Like, how did it get so intense, right? Like, we talked about Advent a couple of months back. And... In Advent, we notice that there isn't; it doesn't have that same level of hymnography that's tied up into that fast period. Um, even the Dormition Fast doesn't have quite as much. The Apostles' Fast basically has no real liturgical uh, kickoff or 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 even payoff. Well, it does have that payoff with the feast, but um, yeah. So I guess my first question coming in would be: maybe let's start real simple, Father Jeffrey. Lent, nowhere in the Bible does it say we have to be doing Lent, right? How do we get from the story of the Bible that doesn't have Lent in it to having Lent as such a major part of our Christian life every year?
1: Right. Well, I think your first comment there that we are maybe living in a fasting time, a Lenten time or whatever, which of course then connects us to times of wilderness, Right? Times of um, alienation, isolation, journeying, pilgrimage, all of those kinds of metaphors, um, which you know, fundamentally gets expressed in the scriptures in the 40 years that the people of Israel spent in the wilderness after their deliverance, you know, their immediate deliverance from Egypt and crossing of the Red Sea. So before they could reach and enter the promised land, the land that had been originally gifted to Abraham in God's call of him. They had to go through the 40 years of of wilderness. And, you know, we could talk about what that means in terms of, you know, spiritual reality and so forth. But of course, the key link to us is our Lord Jesus Christ, because in his own life, a life that over and over takes up you know, recapitulates, sums up, fulfills the whole of the story of Israel, we have his 40 days in the wilderness that precisely follow his own baptism, his own passing through, you know, the waters, um and so forth, which, you know, is clearly presented in the Gospels as a mirroring of the experience of Israel, you know, what Israel wasn't able to fulfill, but he goes through and fulfills, and he's able to keep and fulfill the promises and the, the covenant relationship that God had originally called Abraham and his descendants to fulfill. So. Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, comes out, you know, and we've just celebrated that in the church year in Theophany. And, you know, what happens immediately in the Gospel of Mark, it's put most forcefully, he's driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and spends 40 days not eating, right, fasting. And and so the connection between, you know, this early part of the calendar year um, and the baptism of Christ, and then going out for 40 days in the wilderness uh, as a kind of experience of fasting, alienation, pilgrimage journey to mirror the 40 years of Israel in the wilderness. Is how Lent develops in the early church. The very first kind of forty-day fast is a post-theophany fast. Rather than thinking of it as pre-Easter, pre-Pascha, pre-Holy Week, any of that, which we can get to and talk about how that developed. But the first hint of it is that, and this was in Egypt, in you know the two hundreds, we have evidence that after the celebration of Jesus's baptism, there was a fast of forty days to you know just in complete, you know, sympathy with, empathy with, uh, you know, the fulfillment of, you know, the, what Jesus himself does uh, with the story of, of Israel. So that's maybe the first way to think about it is, you know, we, there is no Lent, or, you know, no instruction, you know, to do this, but in imitation of what Jesus himself does, we are fasting for 40 days. And the best place to put that would be after his baptism.
0: I think it's easy to see Lent as a time when the church is the church imposes external things onto your personal life, right? The church says, well, you have to do this, you have to do this, or this is the way we're going to do things now during this period, even though you might not feel like you're in the mood for that. Um, but what I hear you saying, and maybe we could talk a bit more about this, is that there seems to be this natural human... Um, Pattern of times of, like you were mentioning, alienation, right? Times where things are not right. Times when things are more somber, uh, and then there are also like it, it, this. Even happens with our moods in in a day, right? Like we might have a very peaceful, calm, somber mood, but then we might be out with friends and then laugh or something in the evening, right? And and be uh, jovial together. So even something it, it scales this kind of. Oscillating back and forth between a more open and joyous mood or atmosphere to a more sober and peaceful atmosphere. This scales from even our, our mood all the way up to like the grand story of the scriptures and and everything like that. And and we see it with the coronavirus pandemic that we're living through at the time of this recording, where there's there we are living in a time of more somber living. Right, and and then you have that story of Israel, who goes this this uh, image of them going into the wilderness is this time of alienation and of of needing to be somber and repentant. But then there's also that moment where they enter the promised land and you know become victorious. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is that actually having a season of our year where we purposely set aside that we purposely set aside to. To experience the, the somber and the more serious side of life is actually uh, conducive or in line with our human experiences that on every level of human life is, is sorry, I went a little bit off there, but is that making any sense?
1: no, absolutely, and it it's, it's entirely the same thing as what we've been talking about you know in our discussion of the vesper surface, right that in a kind of micro level, we have a Lenten aspect to every Vesper service, right? And and again we've been talking about how that is actually not just a that's not just the historical record being depicted in a dramatic fashion before our eyes. It is exactly our experience of day-to-day life as faithful members of God's covenant family, right? So, you know, on a day-to-day basis, we go through, you know, what you said, are kind of mood swings or whatever. But I mean, we have moments where we feel really connected to each other and to God. Other moments when we feel like things are just not working out the way we'd hoped and we feel isolated, separated, even abandoned, you know, by God. And the liturgical services, you know, even on that micro level of an individual service like Vespers, allow us to enter into those to transform, transfigure, and and reconnect ourselves with God precisely in and through those struggles, right? And so what we do in a kind of micro level at every Vespers, we do on a more macro level, um, you know, with the church week, Wednesdays and Fridays become those moments within the seven-day cycle of the church. And then if you look at the whole of the church year, we do that on a larger scale, but it's the same kind of, of activity. It's not saying, you know, Lent is now starting feel sad, you know, it's saying, there are times in your life you feel sad. You feel like God is not with you. You feel like you're in a wilderness period, a desert experience uh, of, of spirituality, maybe even a dry, you know, and and unwatered period of, of your spiritual life. Well, now we're going to enter into that together as a community and try to make sense of that and to to reconnect it you know you start off by saying you know we think of it as a kind of period of of having to adhere to a bunch of rules or restrictions well far from that it's actually an invitation to reconnect with god at the times of weakness or despair or suffering or darkness in our lives to say that even in the wilderness there are great resources. I mean, go back to that story of Israel, right? The, you know, you're, you're thirsty. There'll be water from a rock. You're hungry. There'll be manna from heaven, right? You're, you're afflicted by, by uh, serpents that are causing, you know, illness and death. If you stare at that serpent when it's raised up and you have trust and faith in God, you will be delivered, right? So these are remarkable stories of hope and transformation that that are meant to kind of knit into our existing lives as, as they are, you know, we're not being told to do something. We're being told to, to being invited to, to go through what we are already doing and experiencing in order to find God in a, in a deeper way, you know, and this mirrors what Christ does in the wilderness himself in, in the desert, right? He's, we're told that he is like us in every way, except he did not sin and here we're given specific evidence of the kinds of temptations that he underwent right and the way that from the scriptures and not only that precisely from scriptures derived from the wilderness experience of israel note that he's quoting each time from deuteronomy when the satan tempts him in three different ways he, he makes a kind of deep dive into Israel's experience of trust and faith in God in the wilderness and responds out of that. If we learn to do that in our lives, then then there's nothing that can come, whether it's pandemics or, you know, illness, suffering, unemployment, uh, family struggle. All these things will not ultimately undermine or separate us from God because we will have learned how to live in a wilderness time.
0: Yeah, so we've just talked about the human level of, of our everyday experiences. And one thing that I've noticed when I've talked with some, let's say, Protestant or, or you know Anglican friends who decide that they actually want to participate in Lent, one of the struggles that they have is that it's not something that they can enter with the community. Right, it's it's there is no community aspect to Lent. It is this is something you as an individual do, and you know you pick something for yourself and you pick something for yourself. And um, of course, in the Orthodox tradition, we all fast according to our ability, but we definitely have much more of a sense of this is something we are entering into as a community.
1: Yeah, I think, and specifically around, you know, what are you doing for Lent, kind of thing, right? Which is a question that's asked. I mean, obviously various kind of more liturgical protestants and certainly anglicans would have a, a kind of liturgical commemoration that lent starts and and stops on particular days and there would be you know change investments there would be a liturgical kind of commemoration but there is at the heart of it i think as you're suggesting here a kind of um individual appropriation of this about well you know this year i'm going to give up you know social media or i'm going to give up chewing gum or whatever. Uh, and it's that level, I think, where Orthodox would probably wonder whether there's something missing in terms of that communal dimension to it. Because as you say, I mean, we're all fasting differently. And one of the key things that we're reminded over and over again is, you know, don't be looking on other people's plates uh, or fridges during the uh, fasting period. It's not your business. But in I mean, everyone would, I mean, except the most alienated, I suppose those who maybe have no connection to the church, but everyone who's trying to do Lent is at least doing it in relation to one common practice. And in fact, the, the truth of the matter is nobody is doing it fully. Nobody. That uh, if you were mm-hmm, to to mm-hmm. look at this really, really, you know, carefully, that even the the strictest of ascetics is is falling short of the the kind of high bar of of expectation here. So we're all on the same program, as it were, and and we're all striving, you know, for the same thing, whether or not we're for various reasons, uh, you know, taking medication or pregnancy or family commitments or, you know, you just you have a you work as a fireman and you can't possibly, you know. Not have protein to the to the same level. You need that nourishment or whatever. All kinds of reasons that accommodations are made, but they're accommodations in relation to one kind of common standard. And and why that's important is you know again if the the. The model here is the people of Israel in the wilderness. It, you know, We don't picture the 40 years in the wilderness as the Israelites scattering to the four winds, right, and each of them having their own, you know, thing, and only coming back together after 40 years. No, they were in this together, and they suffered together, and they— had victories together and they complained bitterly together and they were ch- chastened and chastised together. And that's the part that, you know, we would, I think, insist on being a key part of, of the Lenten season is that this is the community that goes through this. And that in some ways, you know, my, this isn't just about me, you know, doubling down on my own personal private spiritual life, my relationship with Jesus and a personal, you know, level. I mean, there's elements of that in the Orthodox Christian life. Don't get me wrong. But the overall, our, most of what we experience as Christians is mediated in and through the community. What matters is the community's faith, the community's trust in God, and that ultimately what we're being asked to do in Lent is to actually reconnect with that, and to look out for one another, and to care for one another, and to learn to love and, and 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 give ourselves up for one another, because the only way we're going to get through this is in community.
0: It seems that the liturgical side of Lent, no, like me personally, not knowing much about how it developed, I, I see the evidence of perhaps like a snowballing of Lent Lenten hymnography and readings and services that it just sort of has kept snowballing and snowballing and snowballing until you have like this um, uh, massive amount of services and, and long services and uh, things like that. The Canon of St. Andrew, the first week as well as the fifth week. Um, could you speak a little bit about the development of the services and the liturgical services of Lent and Am I right to use that term snowballing? Because that's my gut feeling of what happened. Uh, But I could be very wrong.
1: Sure. And I think that's a good image. Um, So the first instance of having the 40-day fast is as this post-theophany fasting period. But by the end of the 200s, early uh, 300s, it has already kind of shifted. And that's ever so slightly in terms of of time because most years – uh you know if you were to count back 40 days from the first sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox which of course is the date of pascha you'd put 40 days before that you're pretty much back into february january anyway so when i say it shifts it doesn't shift very far you know uh, in the in the calendar year but uh it gets connected rather than after theophany but before pascha and there are a couple of reasons for that one is that in the very earliest church, uh, there, there really was only one feast, and that was the the Paschal mystery that was celebrated, and it was celebrated every time Christians came together, particularly on the Lord's Day, the you know Kyriaki, the, the the eighth day, the the first day that becomes the eighth day, the day of the Kingdom, and so forth. So, the, the, what we kind of associate with, you know, everything from Holy Week and Good Friday and the the Great and Holy Sabbath in and through to the resurrection of Christ was celebrated as the one mystery of the church, the one liturgy of the church. And that was just how Christians thought in the first couple hundred years. Well, as the church year begins to to develop, I mean, obviously other things are celebrated. I mentioned the baptism of Christ is celebrated, actually celebrated before And everything about the incarnation celebrated in and through the baptism rather than having the separate Christmas feast, which developed a little bit later. But then, you know, all these commemorations happen during the church year. Sundays become a kind of mini Pascha, but ultimately the the feast of feasts becomes more and more important once a year as as Pascha. So we're seeing that by the end of the 200s, beginning of, of the 300s. Well, if you think about it as, you know, instead of Pascha being everywhere and and all the time, now it's once a year. That's kind of snowballing in importance in the first instance. And in order to really heighten that as a celebration, this 40-day fast that was post-theophany becomes a pre-Paschal preparation. First of all, as a few days of, of fasting and Holy Week develops, and then the 40 days gets kind of joined on to that. And also at the same time, that Paschal celebration is the baptismal celebration. This is when people who had been preparing to enter the church are are called to, to lay down their lives, cast aside the old man plunge into the death of Christ in order to rise again in their baptism uh, in his resurrection and then be filled with the holy spirit clothed as the the new citizens of the kingdom that whole celebration which still i mean it profoundly affected our liturgical celebration of pascha the whole baptismal content of it well then the 40 days that were preparatory to pascha become principally a preparation of the catechumens for baptism. And so one of the first kind of layers of uh, the liturgical services that we're looking for. And it's, it, it is kind of like a, a river that has sediment, right? There's, you know, as the river is passing, it leaves, you know, the sediment and you, you can detect these these layers of, of services um, that develop. And one of that, the first layers, in addition to kind of just general wilderness experience, which was, you know, and, and desert temptation and so forth. Now we have this layer of catechetical preparation, right? And so a lot, you can still see that in, in, a lot of the services of the Lenten period. What what's important, uh, you know, to interpret those is to sort of picture the catechumens who typically in the early church had been preparing for several years. Three years was pretty standard. Those who were set aside to go into towards baptism that year would be enrolled on the first day of, of Great Lent by by the bishop. There would be exorcisms that would be carried out throughout uh, the Lenten period. Uh, you know great emphasis on repentance, on prostrations, and so forth. And you know, halfway through Lent, the you know those who are going forward are, are turned from catechumens into those who will be illumined, and we still see that reflected in our liturgical practice. We have that extra litany that comes in halfway through Lent, and and so on and so forth, and then right through to the services of Holy Week, and then the Eve of Pascha, and so forth, where those people, you know, are, are received in, into the church. So all that is a kind of major layer. Well. It's not just that this is happening for them, though, because what I said before about this is a community experience, is absolutely the case for preparing these people for baptism. And so what happens is that everyone in the community is invited to take part in that, to, to be you know, fasting and praying and working with these people in order to bring them into the church. As early as the first century uh, book called The Teaching or the Didache of the Apostles, uh, which, you know, some of which was written probably even before the New Testament was completed, before the Gospels, for instance. But it specifically says that, you know, the person coming to baptism has to come fasting and the person celebrating baptism should be fasting and as many of the other people in the community as well, fasting, you know, with them. And so this idea that, you know, this isn't just the private event or or process for people who are catechumens becoming those who are going to be illumined, becoming those who are going to be baptized at Pascha. It's not just for them. It's for the whole community. And if you think also that a lot of people would have been baptized, you know, at least as a toddler, you know, if not a bit later in the early church, they would have memory themselves of their own baptism. So that annual Lenten period and Holy Week and Pascha was an opportunity to renew their own baptism somehow by accompanying the the newly received into the church. And then from there, it grows and snowballs, as you say. So we've got, you know, generation after generation just wants to add in, um, you know, commemorations. And some of what we now have on the Sundays, for example, in Lent, or some of the later things to develop, and I'm suggesting by about 8th or ninth century. And that's obvious, because, for example, on the first Sunday of Lent, we commemorate an event that took place on the first Sunday of Lent in 843. Well, you know, I can tell you Absolutely. Nobody celebrated the Sunday of Orthodoxy, at least before 844.
0: Or Um, even the uh, Sunday of Gregory Palamas in the
1: the, 1400s. Exactly. So we didn't sort of prophetically, predictively, you know, set these up. So these things get added on. Well, why? Because it was felt that these figures, St. Gregory Palamas, St. John of the Ladder, St. Mary of Egypt, and so forth, that they somehow embodied those existing themes right of of things like repentance or ascent towards god of taking on virtues leaving behind vices of of fasting i mean saint mary of egypt right i mean what better example of going into the desert than the one who lived there for for several decades and 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 experienced you know temptation you know In the way Christ did, but but immediately in in her own person. So, so yeah, it's just it became this treasure house of all of these wonderful commemorations and celebrations. um, You know, but on that foundation, really, of community experience of journeying through time of wilderness towards the, the saving and central mystery of the of Pascha of Christ.
0: Is it right to say that, because this is something I've heard, you know, growing up in the Orthodox Church and speaking with, with people, is that all of Lent, so Lent be ending on Lazarus Saturday, right? So all, all, all of Lent is really focused on our own repentance, our, our personal repentance, right? We have the Canon of St. Andrew, we have all these services, even Vespers has a different form. And then Lazarus Saturday hits and Palm Sunday hits, and we are, tell me if I'm right, uh, we are asked to no longer be thinking about our own repentance, right? Like the, the work of repentance is done, so to speak. We are now entering with Christ into his passion. And our, the, the focus is no longer on, to, to, put, to put it kind of crudely, the focus is no longer on our own healing. It is on participating in this story now. And focusing on that is—is is that
1: a I think, right way of, of yeah, looking at it? I think if you had a a really broad paintbrush, it might look like that, right? And and, and there's a there's a real truth to that, right? So, uh, you know, when you're covering a lot of ground with a wider brush, you you have to you know kind of look at high level you know themes like that. So but maybe just to make the that first part more precise, it's it's not even just so much our own personal repentance. It's this idea that together as a community, we are learning to repent, particularly in sympathy with those who are doing it for the first time, being brought into the church, right? So this care for the catechumens and so forth, that we are re-entering their experience of preparing for baptism, which is a reminder of our own uh you know baptism and of course you know the, the whole experience of repentance of confession the sacrament of confession is kind of called a second baptism so every time we go to that i'm not sure how often we think of it that way but we're we're reentering our own baptism through that that beautiful sacrament of of confession and so if the whole of the that 40 days is kind of construed you know in those terms then you know that that is an opportunity to to enter you know into that anew but but not you know, just precisely narrowly focused on our own selves, but uh, in a community experience. Now, mind you, even in that earlier period, we come out of that every Friday evening and re-enter it every Sunday evening. Every Saturday and Sunday during Lent are not fast days. And so you could say that somehow we're moving out of even that mode into the more celebratory, resurrectional mode. You know, in proper practice, you would have the darker vestments, often purple during the weekdays in Lent, but Friday evening, you switch back to the gold because Saturdays and Sundays are liturgical days. They're Eucharistic days. They're days where we commemorate uh, the saving mysteries, uh, you know, of Christ. And so, you know, today you see purple in the Sundays of Lent in a lot of churches because people aren't showing up in church on the weekdays. So people, you know, the, the pastors, the presbyters want to give people an opportunity to have something Lenten. So they give them the purple on, on Sundays. But properly speaking, when we say Lent, the forty days, we're talking about weekdays, right? And uh so so yeah, once we move into Lazarus Saturday, in a kind of more profound way than we were doing on every Saturday Throughout that period anyway, we're switching into this kind of more celebratory uh, mode with the the foreshadowing of the resurrection and the raising of Lazarus and then Palm Sunday and so forth. And then as we go into Holy Week, I think, you know, we're, we're no longer in a kind of intensive way focused on the preparation of catechumens but rather how all of us are, as you say, a- immersed in the saving mysteries uh, of Christ. And so as he goes forward you know, commemoratively in our, in our liturgical celebrations to his passion, we are meant to accompany him at every stage in ways that even those first witnesses were not able to right so we go with him to you know to the temple and to and those prophetic actions and words in the temple we go with him uh to the garden of gethsemane we go with him as he's taken to trial and back and forth between Pilate and Herod and we go with him on the road to the cross and we stay with him at the cross and you know like very few did uh, by the end and we remain in vigil until the resurrection and so forth that's what liturgically is being invited uh, or we're being invited to do and you know, of course, this is not disconnected from our own repentance. Repentance is about us turning again and again and again. And I think throughout an experience like that, we have to, because our temptation is to turn aside. Right? That's the human thing. We see suffering, and you know, we we we, we avert our eyes. We we don't want to go in this road of self sacrifice, even if it is for this greater good of the the love of God for the world. But Again and again, that's an experience of repentance in this maybe even more profound way than than simply, you know, thinking about our sins had done in that earlier period.
0: Well, that's it, Father Jeffrey. We did another episode. Excellent. Yeah. Was there any, any final things that you wanted to add at all? or? Don't believe so, no. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks, patrons. We'll see you next time. Well, that does it for another episode of the private podcast of Enacting the Kingdom. Thank you again for all your support. Please feel free to comment with any follow-up thoughts or questions. Father Jeffrey and I read them all. Looking forward to having you back soon.